0: How dated would it be nowadays to be like, now I shall write only about, you know, I went to France and I, I ate really high-end food and I didn't notice anything around me, <laughs> you know? I mean, I think that, that it's a good thing that we've sort of moved away from that being the definition of food writing.
1: Hello. Welcome to The Corner Table. Capital Times podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin. If the farmer's markets and restaurant kitchens in Michelle Wilgen's novels sound familiar to a Madison listener, that's because they were directly inspired by the places we know and love. Michelle is a novelist, an editor for Tin House, and an educator who lives in Madison and uses the food culture here to inform her work. I am your host, Cap Times food writer, Lindsay Christians, and this week on the podcast, I talked to Michelle about what makes food writing meaningful and memorable. We talked about some of the writers she loves and how she helps new writers translate their experiences with food into words. Enjoy. welcome. Hi, thank you so much. So first of all, can you just introduce yourself for folks? Yes.
0: Yeah, so my name is Michelle Wilgen, and
1: um, I am a writer.
0: I've written three novels so far, and I also am an executive editor with a literary magazine called Tin House. And lastly, I uh, co-founded um, the Madison Writers Studio with Susanna Daniel, who's another novelist here in town, and we offer various kinds of writing
1: workshops. Are you doing any workshops this summer?
0: I am. Um, I'm going to be doing one that's all about just playing because I feel like we do so much really like craft-based writing, like, you know, do this, do that, learn this, learn that. And I just thought, you know, sometimes writing can be really fun. Let's just stretch ourselves and do a workshop that is just for creative inspiration. So that's what we're going to do. And then I have a big revision workshop going on right now with people who have full drafts of their books and they turn them over to us, and we read the whole thing, and we devote ourselves to talking about each person's book.
1: Oh, my goodness. It's
0: it's a great class. I really love that.
1: That sounds amazing and scary at the same time. I think it is. It's not so scary for me,
0: you know, but it, I think it is for them. No, 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 for the writers. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, I'm fine. Yeah.
1: The question that I kind of first have for you is why you think food and our experiences around food provide such rich fodder for writers. I mean, for me, there's a couple of different
0: reasons. Um, practically speaking— It's common to everybody, right? Everybody has some kind of food experience. And it's a really elemental one that serves such a major need for us that we tend to have strong feelings about it one way or another. Um, But I think it's also really helpful because you can use food to talk about almost anything in fiction or in nonfiction. You know, you can use food to talk about family relationships. You can use food to talk about class or about religion or about region or about the moment in a particular relationship or about change um, because it it reflects all of that stuff. Um, So it's just a useful tool. And then there's the fact that I just really like seeing those words on the page. Like for me personally, it makes me happy to talk about that. Um, so I also just get pleasure out of returning to that subject.
1: So that leads to my next question, which is: When you're teaching ri- writers how to translate some of those experiences around food, those family relationships, those moments of change, um, those you know issues of, of religion that that evolve over time, how do you sort of coach or bring that out in writers? Oh, you know, it's.
0: It's a couple of things. One of the things I ask them to do is I really try and get them to pay attention to their language, um, sensory language. And so I remind them, like, this is this should be involving all of your senses if you can. And show them a few different examples of writers who do that beautifully. Um, and that includes, that doesn't have to be a pleasurable sensory experience, right? It can be something very unpleasant. And sometimes writers have a lot of fun describing um, something that is deeply unpleasant to eat. So it's just sort of sparking their imagination and thinking about language. But I also ask them to write about things that have emotional resonance for them. Um, If I ask you to write about, you know, some arbitrary topic that just doesn't really matter to you, then you're just not going to have that much to say about it, I think. Um, But if I ask you to write about, um, as you know, sometimes I'll ask you to write about a memorable meal and I tell students, you know, this doesn't have to be the best meal you ever had. I'm not asking you to write about a six course gourmet meal you had, unless that was memorable for some other reason. Um, You could be writing about the time that you had a bowl of cereal with no milk and you were sitting with your younger brother out on the back porch. And it, that will be memorable for some other reason. Um, so I really try to get them to widen their um, their expectations about what a memorable meal might be. And they, they usually will find something, because we all have something, um, a food memory that mattered tremendously to us.
1: It's interesting, as you're talking about that, I am remembering some of the writers that I work with for mm-hmm. a column that we do here at the Cap Times. And I'm usually sending folks kind of all over the county, you know, to go to little hole in the wall places or find interesting things for this column. And I've realized over the years that it's not always enough just to send them out and say, write about this coffee shop, because you have to find the thing about the, the coffee shop that makes it interesting or that makes it unique or different or special. Right. And oftentimes that's the people. Mm hmm. Or the, you know, sort of the history of the place or the people who are coming there Mm -hmm. and like what kind of crowd they get and, Mm -hmm. you know, the folks who are the regulars. But it's not always just in, like, what was what did the muffin taste like? Right.
0: Yeah, it's that whole feeling. And is that something that you're able to find out? Or do you ho- hope to match the writer with a kind of place that they will connect
1: with? That's what I've been doing more of. Okay. And because one of the things I discovered is that if I send writers to places that don't spark their imagination or don't interest them, mm-hmm. I shouldn't even say spark their imagination. But if I'm sending a writer to a place that doesn't excite them or interest them, the copy I get back to edit is boring. Right.
0: It ends up serviceable
1: yeah a serviceable
0: description of a muffin yeah
1: yeah and what 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 i've discovered is that when i'm sending i, I sent a one of our freelancers to write about hibachi mm-hmm. with her young son and so we got the descriptions of like the flipping food in the air mm-hmm. and this theater and like kind of the, a little bit of the history with benihana you know in the 80s and 90s you know these japanese food as theater yeah And it was it sparked the writing just sparked. Mm -hmm. And I thought, ah, how can we do more of this kind of thing? And so, you know, sending someone to a place where they actually have an interest or a connection or sometimes I'll send folks in and say, I need you to find that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is from back here. But like, I know that this Cambodian food cart has a story Mm -hmm. and I want you to find out what that story is. Yeah, When you are writing about food or helping someone else write about food what are the challenges when you're describing a flavor or a smell that the reader might not be familiar with
0: i think it's that's actually probably the most fun part if if you are a certain kind of writer like some writers and i'm one of them love a descriptive sensory experience um you know love to have a sensory world and so for me, that's, that's a real pleasure. Um, so when I'm working with a writer, especially if I've asked them to write about food for us, I want to see, before I even have asked them, I want to see that they take pleasure in that kind of thing. Um, and that that's where your language skills come in. And, you know, you're using something unexpected. And um, I remember having to describe the taste of foie gras back when I was a waiter at L'Etoile. And I don't know if this was helpful to people. I I can't remember what my sales were like on that. But I remember saying, like, this is the most animal of flavors because it really is. Like, that is what liver tastes like. And to me, that is a selling point. But it also sort of was useful because it's not a selling point to everybody. Um, You're looking for something that is accurate. You're looking for something that is fresh and interesting to say about it. Um, And I often tell people just write for a while, sort of free write and know that you can take out the stuff that you didn't think was helpful, but you'll usually hit upon what is um, sort of the right description.
1: I always kind of come up against dominant culture Mm -hmm. and, you know, trying not to sort of compare everything to whatever mac and cheese or like Mm -hmm. oh it's it's this kind of a dumpling that kind of challenge is interesting because you you are sort of looking for the thing that makes it different and unique and and descriptive Mm -hmm. but also you don't you want to make a connection for the reader so that they have Mm -hmm. have a way of connecting to it or understanding it
0: yeah and if you get stuck with that sort of received language then we just sort of shut down right away we're like well I know about that
1: you know exactly when you are editing creative nonfiction or personal essay that includes descriptions of food, what kind of things are you looking for? Um, are there things that make it special? Talking about kind of the submissions you get at mm-hmm. Tin House, what kinds of things? You sort of talked about descriptive language. Are there other things that kind of make it pop?
0: Yeah. I mean, I want to see a voice. And one of the things that I tell people about sending work to, um, to us anyway for the food section is that if it's going to work for another magazine, um, then it probably won't be quite right for us. And often what I mean by that and what I see um, as a recurring thing is this sort of surfacy treatment of something that's a little – it'd be great for a glossy magazine, and frankly, they should send it there and make a whole lot more money than I can pay them. But um, if they want to write for us, I want some element of strangeness to it or unexpectedness or weirdness or tension – And that can come in talking about a food that maybe doesn't have an entirely positive association for you. And you have to sort of dig into your mixed feelings about that. Um, I just worked with a writer on a really fascinating essay about her feelings about ice cream. And her feelings about ice cream go deep. Like, she has a lot to say. So that'll be out in a few months. And... Um, I want to see that somebody is willing to think through the deeper associations with food. And if they're not, then I just won't be interested. You know, I, I'm not there to um, look for essays that are sort of like, here are three great places to eat French fries. You know, that's they can do that for another place and that'll be great. And I will read it and I will go eat the French fries at all three places. But um, when it's me, I want it to be something I haven't read about, you know, a topic or something that makes a familiar topic new. Um, something that has that great sensory, you know, immersion and something that has a little bit of unexpected tension or conflict wherever it may come from.
1: Can you think of some examples of mm-hmm. things that you've been introduced to something that either, as you said, sort of something familiar made new in a different way or something that you hadn't encountered that a writer sort of opened up for you?
0: hmm. Um, You know, one of my favorites you had mentioned earlier, um, uh, Lisa Chappelle's work, and I love her early um, her early essay for Tin House that's called An Ode to the Martini. And so I love it because I never cared much about martinis before this, but after reading this essay, I was like, I am going to make martinis a part of my lifestyle, and there's just no getting around it, because she describes it so wonderfully. She talks about the literary um, sort of presence of the martini, the associations that we have with it with certain writers. So she just had so much fun pulling in all of the associations that we, we probably do have when we look at a martini, but she was sort of actually explicating all of them. Um, and so that's a great example. So is the one that I just mentioned about um, ice cream, because for her, it's all tied into body and family and sex and development. And it's it's all sort of intertwined for her. So it took, you know, my trip to the ice cream stand and made it made me feel a lot different about it.
1: Oh, I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. It. You talking about sort of martinis and like the writers and other things we have associated with them made me think sort of about Ernest Hemingway and daiquiris. Mm-hmm. And there there are a lot of, I think, those literary associations that we have with food. When you think about writers who have done just really beautiful or powerful work, sort of writing about food, either in fiction or nonfiction, are there names that come to mind that you think folks should read?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, In the last few years, Gabrielle Hamilton's Blood, Bones, and Butter um, is a wonderful memoir about her early life and growing into becoming a chef. And what I love about that is the first couple of chapters, she talks about her childhood and the way her family ate and the way her mother cooked. And it's not only an incredible portrait of her mother just as a person, but all of the food description um, is both tantalizing, but she also is not afraid to talk about like the farms and, you know, the milk and the cows. And I, I won't use the word she uses, but she's, you know, she really is taking a full measure of what we're talking about when we talk about these things. Um, Lori Colwyn has always used food beautifully. She um, has been dead for a long time, but all of her works are still in print because she's, people have a passionate following for, with her. And um, she had columns for gourmet that are collected in home cooking and more home cooking. But then she also used food a lot in her fiction. And so she was really formative to me about how she would use food to characterize different people um, to make the scene feel both pleasurable and meaningful. And um, it just is a constant thread running through the way she looks at the world. So I return to her all at the time.
1: There are images from both of those writers that I think about frequently when I'm cooking in my kitchen. Gabrielle Hamilton has a little anecdote about washing greens under hot water, and they wilted, and she didn't realize. Mm-hmm. She just thought she would wash them in, in the water that felt best to her hands. Oh, I right? thought you
0: were going to tell me like she, because my first thought was like, that's a bad idea. And then I thought maybe you'd say like, no, that's how chefs do it. Like it's some special secret thing. She was no. a kid. Yeah. Okay. And she
1: didn't realize. She wrote a wonderful essay recently for the New York Times Magazine that was about dinner parties. I think I read that. It was awesome. Yeah. I remember I was sitting in a coffee shop in Milwaukee. I was there for work and I was just sitting at this coffee shop, reading this essay about dinner parties and thinking about my friends and our dinner parties. And I started to cry in public. (laughs) That's always good. (laughs) And I thought, this is what good food writing does or good writing. Yeah.
0: And that's why I mean, that's the other reason why we why writing about food is so useful, because we gather around it. Um, I was writing recently about like family novels and YA novels. And I was like, you know, no wonder this stuff is also important, because the whole human drama is crammed into like a single house, a single building. And that's why writing about family gives you so much to discuss. And I think it's the same with meals. Like we end up together at the table and whatever we're feeling, I don't believe that it goes away so we can have a nice meal together. It very much informs, you know, what's at that meal together. And we learn things from each other. Like, I feel like I learned how to entertain from my friends. There are things that i didn't know as a young adult that I learned because I got invited over to somebody's house you know and so that has a lot of resonance for me
1: I think that one of the challenges that I encounter in my work a lot is that I am trying to take an experience that is fundamentally fairly personal you're you're taking food into your body and you're you're processing it through your own lens and your own experience but I especially like with restaurant criticism I need to put it in a context where anybody who goes to that restaurant can have a sense of what they might experience mm-hmm. when they're there. Yeah. Um, but I also want to, you know, have that kind of personal voice. And it's I, I find that to be a sort of an interesting tension and yeah. challenge.
0: Well, and also with criticism too, because yeah, it, it is you, it is your personal opinion, but it can't be so idiosyncratic that it's not remotely helpful to
1: anybody else. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things I also find really interesting, I write about wine and spirits. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Elisa Chappelle, she wrote she's writing about chartreuse, mm-hmm. I think, for the current issue of Tin House. Mm-hmm. And she's written about absinthe, and she's written about some other um, other experiences she's had around sort of the spirit world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wonder when you, when you are working with essays like that or work like that, there's a lot around spirits mm-hmm. that, that is also sort of touching upon or cousin to like the pathology that we have around drinking and the problems with drinking culture. And I wonder when you're working with essays like that, if, if that's something that's in your mind, if you're thinking about about that as well.
0: It depends on where the essay starts and what our goal is for it. Um, I think ideally, though, you will account for it. Um, one of the most interesting things that Elisa has done when I've worked with her on these pieces is she wrote about, with the absinthe piece, um, that she has a kind of epilepsy that is exacerbated by using these, like, psychogenic, you know, um, substances. And so she didn't realize what she was doing to herself when she got really into absinthe for a while in Portugal, like, 25 years ago or something. Um, and so part of what made that so wonderful was that we would say, like, okay, tell me more about this. Tell me more about what you really felt. And this is not easy for a writer to do. Um, it's easy for her in terms of her language and her beautiful writing, but, you know, there's an element of self-examination uh, with any good nonfiction that can get very uncomfortable. And so you have to be kind of sensitive to it as an editor, but also uh, it's sort of my job to to prod at those things. And I try to walk the line between saying, you know, we, we're trying to write the best essay we can, and that's going to involve some discomfort for all of us, but also it's It's just an essay. it's It's not psychotherapy where I have to torture you, you know, so I, I try to be respectful of that, but I will usually ask the questions a few different ways and see if I can get an answer that we're all comfortable with.
1: I don't think I'd ever read a piece that that treated sort of a spirit or you know, because usually it's one or or the other. Mm-hmm. It's we're going to talk about the history and the tradition and the culture. Mm-hmm. or we're going to talk about my personal experience with this thing, right and i I will never forget that essay because it 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 got so it did get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It got personal mm-hmm. because it's about both of them. And you never see that. yeah. I, I specifically wanted to talk about her work today in part mm-hmm. because I thought, my god, how do you how do you do that? How do you yeah. balance something like that? And yeah. just and it's it seems to be on such a a careful. A careful weighing, a careful balance. Mm -hmm.
0: I think some of it is paying attention to sort of it's how you set it up. What's the lens? And you want to sort of account a little bit for that little sort of frisson of something is going to happen in here that will be a little different. So that when it comes, maybe it doesn't feel like a total 180. Um, And how long has it been since you went to the dark side in that essay? And how long did you stay there? And so you know, you sort of want to balance out your elements a little bit. Um, But that's it's very much done by feel. Um, Did you ever read Sarah Rowan's book, um, The Gumbo Tales, or Gumbo Tales, not The? No. So she is a writer who grew up in Fort Atkinson and moved to New Orleans and lived there for maybe 10 or 15 years and fell in love with the city. And she originally wanted to write about falling in love with New Orleans as a transplant, but while she was in the middle of the writing, Katrina happened. And so instead of just writing about all the little mom and pop places to get gumbo that she loved, she was writing about the attempted recovery of all of these places. Not all of them made it back. But she writes really beautifully about um, the Sazerac, and within, uh, which is this cocktail that's very popular in New Orleans. And one of the things she's talking about in there is the way the city was using drinking after you know, Katrina to sort of recover. And how it had taken on a different kind of emotional tone where people were just like, no, I need this. I'm going to be
1: drinking this.
0: Um, It's not just having fun right now, but like we are really struggling. And so that's another person who handles that really beautifully.
1: I have been sort of going back into Anthony Bourdain's work. And um, I have queued up. I haven't watched it yet, but I've queued up the episode on Beirut, Mm -hmm. No Reservations, Mm -hmm. where essentially it looks like they went to Beirut to write a specific story about food. And they ended up covering a war yeah and it, it's sort of how we're looking for one thing and we end up in a different place yeah. and i think any kind of writing or research that that does that is it is kind of fundamentally exciting mm-hmm. and, and maybe has the potential to change you
0: yeah and and I think you want to pay attention to that. I feel like how dated would it be nowadays to be like, now I shall write only about, you know, I went to France and I I ate really high-end food and I didn't notice anything around me, <laughs> you know? I mean, I think that, that it's a good thing that we've sort of moved away from that being the definition of food writing.
1: Yeah. I was curious about your research process. Um when you are when you were working on some of your novels. Um, there's a lot that sort of either takes place in restaurants or that is informed by that. And I know you've got a history uh, working in some local Mm -hmm. restaurants here. But I wonder, you know, do you still do that kind of research when you're thinking about, like, I'm going to be setting this portion of my novel in – you know, a food kind of context. Do you still do that kind of research?
0: I definitely do. Um, my third novel, Bread and Butter, was set in the restaurant industry. And I had worked in the restaurant industry, you know, waiting tables in high school and college. But then after I graduated from college, I wanted to learn about food and wine and I needed a job. So I thought, well, I'm going to try and go to the best restaurant I can and hope that they'll teach me. So that's how I worked at Le Toile for like three years. Um, but by the time I was ready to write about the restaurant business, a lot of time had passed. I had only always been front of the house. I'd never run a restaurant. Um, So even though I was – my interest was sparked by that experience, I had to add a lot of knowledge to that to be able to credibly talk about opening up a restaurant, which is what these characters are doing. Um, So for that, I read a lot of books, the Michael Rollman books about um, the life of a chef and the soul of a chef and the reach of a chef – I think I'm getting those titles right – are really helpful – And then uh, my friend Daniel Momont, who was one of the first owners of The Old Fashioned, was willing to sit down. And I just I do a lot of bugging people and just asking them questions. And so he sort of walked me through, you know, the basic things that you do. And then you you sort of ask people. I mean, the great thing about interviewing people is that you can ask them for the little things that like a, a book might not think to tell you. Um, I remember him saying, like, oh, no, nobody buys a dishwasher. You rent a dishwasher and then you get the supplies, like, through that company. And so just these random little things that you wouldn't think to ask, but if you get people talking, they will think to tell you. Um, and then I, I in the case of something like that, I also had him read it after I had written it so he could tell me the things I had gotten wrong just in the process of inventing. So you need to learn enough to be able to put your characters in a room and have a broad sense of what's going to affect them. And then hopefully after that you can get your story and you'll figure out the questions you need to to find out. And sometimes they have a real effect on the story. Like if you find out that you had, you know, I have a restaurant owner and his executive chef who fall in love. And my when I had Daniel read that, he said, you know, this might happen, but it would be a really big deal because um, it's, it's not done. And so I decided to leave it, but it gave me so much more tension that it was really useful.
1: I, I think about how you get into the body of the person, right? And, like, how much your feet hurt when you're standing that long. Yeah. And, you know, just kind of – I was recently interviewing a local chef about some of his early work um, when he was sort of first starting out. And he talked about working over a grill. You know, it's basically a flat-top grill. Mm-hmm. But it was so hot yeah. that his, the backs of his arms would turn red. huh and because you're you're scorching your skin, yeah,
0: for hours, <laughs> hours. <laughs> yeah,
1: and he was talking about just how hot that was. He was talking about um, working when he was young. He was he did a stage mm-hmm. in uh, this high end um, hotel restaurant in in Alsace, mm-hmm. and he would smuggle cake in his pants because like into the walk-in because they weren't allowed to eat until three o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of details are gold for yeah. a writer. Yeah. We like, want the pants
0: cake. Yeah. We Absolutely. want the pants cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the feeling of like you want to know a specific kind of exhaustion. Like, what exactly do you feel like? And people won't think to lead with that information. So you you learn how to ask the questions that will get them to tell you.
1: It's about the amount of time you have to spend, too, to sort of get that to come out in yeah. those details. And I feel like often the work that I'm doing here at the newspaper, I'm on such tight deadlines that I only have time to be surface. Mm -hmm. Um, But part of the joy of these kinds of, you know, the essays and the, the creative nonfiction and the fiction that you get to edit and work with is that you have maybe a little more time to dig in and go a little deeper. Yeah.
0: And that is definitely a lot of the fun of it, that not only do I want to do it, but I kind of need to do it in order to do my job well. Um, and most people, if if they want to write for us about food um, for Tin House, they know that's what we wanted. So they're they're like poised and happy to do that.
1: Have you seen the kind of food writing and the quality of food writing? Have you seen it change or improve or anything over the years? Have you seen any kind of shifts?
0: I think it's just gotten um, there's just more. There's more variety. There's a lot more attention paid to it. Um And so therefore, within that variety, I think I I find more stuff that I'm interested in. And then, you know, because there's so much is published, there's certainly plenty that I'm not as interested in, but I can still respect it, even if it's not what I'm going to spend all my time reading. Um, So in general, I think that it has it's it's improved overall, I would say, because it used to be, as we were talking about a little bit before, it used to be like food writing just meant let's have a bunch of really elitist writing about um, fancy French food. And that's all people thought it was. Um, And originally, when I wanted to write about food, I wanted to learn enough so that I could write that way. But um, as you get older and the world changes and you encounter different kinds of food, you realize there's a lot more interesting stuff out there. And I think everybody has sort of had that realization.
1: Can you tell people where they can find information about the workshops? And also, um, is the summer edition of Tin House is out? Um, yes, I believe it is.
0: I have my copy, but then I get it a little bit early, so you know it might take a little bit. Um, so yes, uh, the Tin House is out. Our last issue was about was themed on candy, but then this one is a little bit different because our summers are just sort of open themed. Um, people can find out about the Madison Writers Studio at madisonwriters.com. And we always have our upcoming workshops on there, but we also have a contact button because you know we can kind of do whatever we want. So if people see something um, or they don't see what they want, then we always encourage them to get in touch with us or ask like what is the right workshop for them to start with. If because a lot of people are just they want to return to writing, but it's been a while. Um, so then we all we often like offer a little bit of guidance about which way they should go. That sounds great. It's very fun. Well, thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me. This has been a great pleasure.
1: This has been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by The Capital Times. Our music was composed by Patrick Christians. Michelle Wilgen is the author of You're Not You, But Not For Long, and Bread and Butter. You can find out more about her at her website, Michelle Wilgen, That's W-I-L-D-G-E-N, dot com, and find more food and drink news at captimes.com. Subscribe to The Corner Table wherever you get your podcasts. I am your host, Cap Times food writer, Lindsay Christians. I'm going to be taking a break in the month of July, so for the next few weeks, enjoy some of our favorite archival episodes about acoustics in restaurants, the great taste of the Midwest, and more. My wish for you this summer is a lakeside picnic with cheese, crusty baguette, and a bottle of cold rosé. Cheers!